Hey y'all, Alan here, and welcome to A Journey's Rest, a podcast focused on the vast but deep set of topics about the complexity and joy of roleplay games. Whether you need to attune to a magic item, regain some hit points, change out spells, or just reminisce with friends, we just sit down here for around about an hour and enjoy ourselves. This week, I had surgery, and it was a dip blah blah. Ah, that just goes to show how bad it was. It was a difficult episode to edit. On the bright side, that somehow means you get the normal episode and a bonus episode this week, but at the cost of them being a day late. Who knew we could talk about D&D so long that it would need to be broken down into two episodes? Who knew that having surgery could make me feel like crud? Somebody should have warned me, and whoever that is, I will never forgive you. Until I forget that I'm mad. What am I mad at again? Oh well. Alright, hope you enjoy. Clap check. Alright, wonderful. Fantastic. Hi everyone, I'm Alan, and I would like to welcome you to a journey's rest. And today, we have a wonderful set of friends with us. I not only have one guest. I not only have two guests. I not only have three guests. I not, no, it's actually just three guests. So um, we have three of my wonderful, wonderful friends, which I play D&D with on a regular basis. Um, and they are uh, my wonderful friend, Brooke. Hello. My wonderful friend, Barry. Hello. And my also other wonderful friend, Talon. Hi. And we all play in a campaign called Levitica together. And we're the Levitica boys. Yes. And we would like to talk to you about the final fight for season one of that campaign that we had just recently. So actually, Barry, our wonderful DM for this campaign, has been working incredibly hard on the last fight of this battle, and wow, did it go over amazingly. Mm -hmm. And we had an absolute blast of a time, and so I said, well, gosh, wouldn't that be so awesome if we could maybe get some time where we're all free and we all are able to talk about that final fight with each other, and I was just super excited about it. So... Um, I thought that we would go ahead and do that. So does that sound okay with everybody else? No, I'm leaving. Goodbye. Okay. Well, we've got, still got the yes, three of us. It <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think I had a kind of um, a way that I thought this would go. So um, generally... I think it's going to be really beneficial for us to go through and kind of give a gist of the characters that we play for all the players, which is uh, me, Alan, and then Brooke, mm -hmm. and then um, Talon. And I don't really care who goes first. I pref I'd pr actually prefer if it was not me. Um, but we're, we're all going to go through and I think describe our characters. And we'll give like maybe like a five-minute synopsis of who our characters are. And uh, then we can go forward with that and share as much as you'd like uh, up to the point of where all the other characters know. Mm -hmm. And then that way, Barry, after we are all done, can talk about the setting and give a, the audience a quick gist of what's going on in the world and what type of events are happening to culminate into this final battle. Does that sound good with everybody? Sure thing. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, 
Let's go ahead. You know what? I don't feel like going first. So, Talon, I'm volunteering you. What? I, I, <laughs> you heard me. <laughs> we, how, about, how about we do Brooke, then Talon? Man. You volunteered someone else first, so you get volunteered to actually go first. You sound I like, like that. a high school I like teacher, that. dude. Well, maybe you shouldn't just tell other people what to do. I was saying, here, does anybody want to go first? And you told someone. So now it's your turn. <laughs> so oh, I think boy. it'd be good if, um, I think it'd be good if, if, Brooke went first, talked about her character, mm-hmm. and then Talon went f- and then talked about his character, and then I talked talked about my character. So, Brooke, Soon. do you want to go ahead and give a quick synopsis of who your fantastical sword boy is? Oh, boy. Goody. Yes, I'd love to. Um, the character that I play in Levitica, his name is Ronan. It's very cheesy, I know. Um Ronan actually didn't come into the campaign until a little while into it for a variety of reasons. But um, Ronan started off as a member of one of the, I guess, Knights Guards in the Levitican army. He was a palace knight um, who, before coming to the palace, worked for a kind of... An organization slash group of people, I don't know, a lifestyle group called the Bakudo, and a series of events happened that led up to him becoming a knight in the army, and he was sent off with Alan's character and Talon's character. Uh, There was a lot of character development that happened from the time that they left to the time of the final fight. My character, Ronan, usually wears really heavy mithril armor, and he always had uh, his hood up, and he always wore a metal oni mask over his face, Mm -hmm. so nobody could ever see his face. Mm -hmm. However, that changed the day before the final fight, where he felt comfortable enough to take off the mask and to take off the shoulder pauldrons of his armor that had the Levitican seal on it mm-hmm. and dissolve them in acid. He sort of gave up that piece of his identity. Okay. And uh, when he took off the armor, he had some tattoos on his face that signified that he was part of the Bakudo, which were pressed digitated off his face, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, yeah. well, by s- Alan's character. Who who was the Bakudo? Like, what did they do? Like, We've gotten a little bit of information about Ronan, yes. about all this stuff. So why is Ronan no longer with the Bakudo? And I don't know if I can tell you that. I mean, but you've talked about how he's moved away from that yeah. a little bit. I'm trying to give Ronan a little bit more flesh for the okay, audience. Okay. Because you've told us a little bit about it. And as much as you've told us about it, I want to make sure the audience has that same right. flesh. You know what I mean? Fair enough. Um Ronan lived and served under the Bakudo for a while. Um, I can't give away too much backstory information because that's classified. Yeah. But just a, just enough, you know what I mean? Um, the Bakudo, as far as they know, are people who steal really, really expensive spell books. Mm-hmm. Um, they are hidden somewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Commodus had somewhat of an interest in them and where they were. Uh, He, things happened and he left the Mm -hmm. Bakudo, became a knight, and 
eventually Ronan just got really tired of being handed from one organization to the next. Yeah. He got so tired of being told what to do his entire life that he decided, you know what? Screw this. I'm throwing away all of this stuff. I just want to be me. Yeah. I'm making an oath to myself to always be the person that I know that I am. Right. And some cool stuff happened in regards to him taking an oath. Yeah. And that's all I'll say about that. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. That That is fantastic. So there we go. We have uh, we have Ronan as our first character. Um, and next up, we're going to talk about the wonderful and fantastical elf lad uh, that is controlled by uh, Talon. Talon, do you want to go ahead and talk about Phalios? Sure. So, Phalios is a 275-year-old fella. He is a high elf. Um, a rogue, perhaps is important to say. And Phalios comes from a town within Levitica, more of a city, by the name of Endymion. And Mm -hmm. Phalios grew up kind of raised primarily by his grandfather, Karyar, which you all have learned throughout the story. Yeah. And essentially, Phalios' family is huge on artificery and taking spells, putting them into items, and basically using that as a way to sell and give these powers to everyone else in the world. Mm -hmm. My mother, um, Asteline, the daughter of my grandfather, kind of raised me to think of this aspect of the family business as that, nothing beyond that. Whereas my father, married into the family, kind of takes this artificery and takes it to a whole nother level where it's getting to the point where he wants to monotonize this uh, and use it for force and protection. Um, With that being said, at one point when Phileos is young, uh, a fight breaks out between... uh, my mom and dad, and my mom dies. And that's kind of a tipping point in the character arc for Phaleos because he's very young, he's been raised by his grandfather, and this bad thing happens and starts to make him question who he is as a person. And shortly after that, Phaleos just kind of leaves. He leaves mm-hmm. uh, Endymion, um, kind of tries to write his own story, um, growing yeah. up, he's highly a, a rogue. He does rogue things. Um, actually, um, it's interesting to say this, but his name is actually Lord Tholomon. And he goes by Phileos because that is a name that he creates as a disguise, basically, when he's out and being a rogue, stealing, getting money from mm-hmm. people. And eventually he meets up with Ronan and... Florea, and we start mm-hmm. this whole quest throughout Levitica and trying to, I don't know, I think all three of our purposes are kind of finding, I don't want to speak for you guys, but like finding ourselves within yeah. um, within this world. So. Um, yeah. so that's really about it for Phaleos, is he's just this rogue 
rogue wizard trying to find himself and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to handle his own battles at home and extrapolate on that. Yeah. Very nice. That was a, that was fantastic talent. Mm-hmm. Well done, dude. Uh, for the first time, everybody, this is Talon's first time ever on the podcast, and uh, Talon is doing a fantastical job. I'm gonna quick give a quick clap for Talon. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, but thank you, Talon. Um, so I guess I will go ahead and talk about my dude now. Um, as far as you guys kind of know, um, uh, I play a character named Florea who um when you first met only ever wore a large blue coat and these black leather gloves and wore feathers woven of of quills into his hair that he would take out to use to write in things and then weave back into his hair whenever he didn't need them again he is a what what you would perceive to be a drow who seems to have no problem in the sunlight and has this vibrant, almost um, cyan blue hair with these deep cuts in his skin on his face coming down from his eyes and trailing down from back behind his ears that seem to be these grooves full of blue, um, blue tattoo. And as he casts magic, his eyes light up and these tattoo grooves light up and his hair flares out into these um, moments of almost intense um, arcane power. Um, Floria is a wizard and he practices the school of abjuration. Now, Floria always tries to put on this front of performative ambition and every time he talks he completely refers to himself as the great mystic Florea, the lithomancer of a legend and every time he uh, tries to talk to people he puts on this these very big airs um, and as a lot of people have kind of figured out that is 100% a coping mechanism for mm-hmm. him to mm-hmm. be able to mm-hmm. just kind of shut people out as people look at him and they say, you're no great mystic, it's like, well, I mean, to you, like, I don't need to prove that I'm a great mystic to you, but I know I'm a great great mystic because of all the things that I've been able to overcome. And that's happened a lot of times. Uh, But it also is kind of like a distancer for him from people because if they always believe this this performative persona, they don't dig deeper into him. And it was revealed a little later on that um, Floria's entire upper torso was made out of stone and that he had a um, a large blue gem that was stuck in the center of his torso and two sapphires that were stuck in his palms, all of that made out of stone. Um, earlier on in the campaign, and still recently actually, he has this habit of collecting stones that he really likes from across the world and carving them down so that he can add them to his body as his body starts to deteriorate. He oftentimes finds himself breaking apart as rocks from him break, and he has to replace them with new stones that he finds along the road. And he has continued to do so. And so when he was going through this entire uh, ordeal with meeting Ronan and Phaleos. He started to kind of open up and explain to them a little bit about, you know, all these different things 
that he was going through. Basically, everybody kept asking him, oh, you know, like, why do you like to drink so much? And he's like, well, it kind of, it's fun. And then later they realized that Florea is 17 as a drow. Yep. And they were like, maybe you shouldn't be drinking that much. And he's just like, oh, this is how I cope with pain. <laughs> and it was, it's a whole thing. And um, underage drinking was a really harsh and wild coping mechanism for him. But um, yeah, that, that it was pretty rough for, for that extent of things. And um, later he's just been practicing abjuration magic because he is really fearful of being hurt. He really doesn't like being hurt. Um, and that kind of leads back to what his real name is, which eventually people figured out was Ziv, or Roman numerals for 14. Um, and he told you guys that there was a man named Incranol that experimented on him for 15 years and only ever called him by his experiment number. And it was 14. And he is an abjuration wizard because he is, he is terrified of people hurting him again. And he only wants to stop people from hurting him or the people that he cares about. Or that's at least what he tells you. That's definitely one of the facets of him, definitively. Um, but he chose Florea as a new name for himself, meaning uh, in, in, my, in my idea of it, it means blooming flower. And that is why he chose that name, because he wanted to become again a new flower. Uh, and that is why he wears lots of vibrant colors and uh, weaves um, nature into his hair and things like that. So, um, And after this, we all kind of met Solara, which was the person that kind of set us on this journey. She promised us a ton of riches, um, and Ronan was one of the guards for Solara. And we went to this island, and we started exploring on this island, and as we were there things started to slowly unpack and get a little crazy and a little wild. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great start for uh, Ronan and for Phaleos and Florea. Um, is there anything you guys want to add on to that uh, as, like, external pieces of our characters? Yes, I... Listening to you two do your character descriptions, I realized I left out some actually pretty important bits about Ronan. Yeah, sure. Do you uh, want to keep going? Yeah. For one, he is, was, is an Eldritch Knight fighter. Mm -hmm. um, a little ways into the campaign on this island, they discovered that Ronan had what we call a mana crystal mm -hmm. embedded directly into his chest, mm -hmm. kind of over where his heart should be. Yeah. Not uh, directly on the center, but a little bit to the just side. a little bit to the left, yeah. Yeah. Um, and when he casts magic, he primarily draws from that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of stuff that he hasn't told you guys about the Bakudo, but you get the feeling from everything that I've said. I feel like he doesn't like them. Yes, that that whole thing happened in the Bakudo. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why he calls himself Ronan is because Ronan as you learned, is a title for, I guess, a class of people yeah. in the Bakudo that yeah. are sent to do things that are 
wildly outside of the bounds of what humans should be able to do or reasonably within sound mind would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And eventually he gave up the title of Ronan and just went by his usual name. Very nice. Uh, he goes by, well, his name is Tatsuo, mm-hmm. which he now goes by. Yeah. And one of the really cool things is actually, if you're listening to the po- this podcast and you're like, wow, that sounds really interesting. We're actually combining some things for Paladin and Eldritch Knight, mm-hmm. and we are going to be releasing sometime soon a new oath for paladins called the path or the oath of arcane absolution. So, if you are interested in hearing about that and what might be a great combination for an intelligence-based paladin, stay tuned and keep an, keep updated on both our Twitter and our Facebook, and we will be releasing that sometime soon. Because who needs to take an oath to a god when you got you and your best buddies? When you got your right own there. good friendos that you make your oath to. Got your three musketeers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Does anybody else have any cool things they'd like to detail um, about uh, our characters? Um, one thing that I'd love to talk about Phaleos is just, he's just the coolest mf'er yes. in the whole world. Like Phaleos is just like the most chill cucumber in all all situations. And oh, almost every situation. Yeah, except for when he gets real upset about his friends, I think is really kind of it. He gets really serious and he doesn't let anybody mess with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can tell us more about that if yeah. you'd like. Yeah, I think that's actually spot on. I think Phaleos is actually a pretty good extension of myself as a person into mm-hmm. a character in a D&D world. So it's kind of, it's it makes it easier to be able to get into character when your character is basically yourself. So yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, yeah. that's something I've done before. I always try and find a, a fragment of myself to really mm-hmm. impregnate a, a character ideal with. And that way I can focus on an aspect of my own identity and then yep. really delve into these characters. But... Yep. I would like to introduce a fun fact to the audience um, that Florea actually existed before the campaign did. Yep. (laughs) About three to four months older than my first actual session notes. Um, Even though the idea that, uh, or the idea that I've had for this game had existed for uh, eight months probably, but as soon as I was thinking about this idea, Alan was completely in and creating this character. Mm-hmm. Um, I it think took me for, forever to make Floria, honestly, forever. In, indeed, and in terms of, in terms of one of the most niche aesthetics, I would love for, I almost called you Phaleos, for Talon to tell the audience <laughs> about Phaleos's mage hand. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love Phaleos's mage yeah. hand. Yeah. Phaleos is this weird necrosis around him. It's just the coolest thing ever. He has the, like, subtle necrotic drip. Yeah. It's just oh, yeah. swagging always. Something, before I get into that real quick here, something that I left out uh, when I was describing Phaleos is the, the fight that broke out between his mother and father. His mom died by basically yeah. a mana explosion which is really interesting yeah. that Ronan extrapolates on that with his connection to mana Philios also has this 
not really lack of understanding. He doesn't really know what it is. He kind of knows like the premise of it, but we all have this like connection to mana in some way, and that really makes the story kind of interesting as we're trying to figure out what it is and what we're trying to uh, trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, my mage hand. I when I first described my mage hand, I actually had it as a cantrip for a long time, but it didn't, it never really came out until I was like, ah, I'm finally going to use this thing and see what it does, whatever. Right. Um, anyway, so Barry is like, all right, describe this mage hand. He just puts me on the spot yeah. and I'm like, oh, it's, I literally thought that every character's mage hand was actually a physical thing. Like it, they had a hand that they just always kept on them. So oh. that's what, that's what Phaleos did. He has this skeleton, hand that he just keeps in his like inside of his robe and when he summons mm-hmm. it it comes out and it's kind of each finger has this this ring on it and um they're kind of illuminated with blue crystals and each ring that he has represents a member of his family which gets kind of into the final fight that we can I'll kind of allude to later on, but he does something with one of those rings that I was yeah. really excited to do, and I was really excited yeah. with how it turned out in session. And and you said it's a skeletal hand, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Super cool. And one of my favorite spells that as we were leveling up for the final fight, I just heard, oh, gosh, in the middle of the final fight, Phileos was like, mm, yeah, I, ca- I cast negative energy. And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you fucking what? So casual. You what? I, he's just like casually casting all of these, uh, these um, what, what's it called? Necromancy, Necromancy yeah. spells. And I'm just like, that's the most crazy shit ever. And it's so cool. We'll get a little bit more into that later. But yeah, that's super cool. Um, Barry, really quick, would you mind giving us a rundown on what mana is in this like setting? Because I think mana is super important to kind of the way that things operate in this setting. And for you to be able to give us a quick rundown of that might give the audience a lot of context on what that means. Hey everyone, I know this is really weird, but Barry gave an awesome description of both what mana was and an entire description of our entire campaign. And it was absolutely wonderful, but it was just a little too long for this podcast to make sure that everything got in. We wanted to make sure that we had a very streamlined version of it. So I edited down about an hour's worth of description into maybe 30 minutes, 25 minutes. And so we're going to play that one here. But if you're interested in listening to the whole thing, that one's going to be released as a bonus podcast really soon as an unedited version of all of this. So if you're interested, check that one out as well. But here you go. Here's Barry describing mana and the rest of our campaign. The easiest way to describe mana is the physical representation of NPC magic. And that's about as close as I can get. In a lot of fantasy games and settings, they tend to have this measure of your magical abilities And mana in itself is amorphous for this reason that it can be used for many, many things, but it's an easy representation of a power level. It's a great intermediary as a a measurement tool. So one of the premises of this world is the blossoming industry of artificery. So as a character within this world, you don't have to spend your life dedicating yourself to understanding all the nuances of wizardry and be able to cast that spell you've always wanted to. You can 
just find a way to purchase an item that can manifest this effect from an artificer of high enough level that is capable of creating these. The premise of Levitica is that as magic itself becomes more and more prevalent, society almost becomes more and more industrious, right? As this technology is created and used by single users, eventually people figure out that there's not a lot that magic can't do as a whole. And so these spells almost start replacing the mundane aspects of humanoid life, and these cities begin to blossom and flourish as these almost like arcane elysiums of just complete perfection. But perfection in itself is inherently flawed, and that is the premise of this campaign. Yeah. That's so awesome. Like giving it the like like the dreams of those who'd wish to do good and finding where lofty goals can sometimes be full of holes, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. and that type of stuff can be really, really hard to deal with. And oftentimes it takes a whole village. And when you try and do it with a lesser amount of people, it can oftentimes become very difficult. So Yeah. All right, well, Barry, do you want to quickly give us um, uh, any more information on the gist of how this specific setting works into the campaign that these players are working into? So one of the first things I would have to bring up within this campaign, besides the prevalence of artificery within these large cities, is secondly the presence of these newer cities. The world itself is measured in years, but collections of years are measured in ages. Ages are divined by clerics and gods and star movements to determine when a significant enough event has happened in the world that there is now a precedent, right, to measure a new age. There has been a significant enough development to set one set of years apart from another. And about 200 years ago from the start of this campaign, roughly, was the end of the Fourth Age. And basically, this arcane plane was sundered with almost a phylactery of souls that found their way into the weave and bounced back. There were five cities kind of close to one another, and one of them was completely destroyed at the end of the Fourth Age by by this infestation of creatures who, who were creating this arcane sundering. And with the destruction of this city and the big bad guy completed, this wizard wound up rebuilding it and thought, okay, that took a lot of work, but now this city's brand new. I built homes for people. I built places of work for people. I created such purpose in life. I'm going to continue doing this. And so he created a number of artificial cities. A big thing he used to help this was actually an idea I had the second I found out about them. I knew I wanted them in the game, but I needed a way to introduce them. These were the Warforged. An important Mm -hmm. stipulation in the way I will refer to them from here on out is that they were not forged for war. Yeah. They were forged for a number of purposes, exploration, construction, um, as well as sort of a a national guard, right? There are town guards, there Mm -hmm. are uh, city guards outside these walls. Um, Cities have kind of militias. No one really has a military, but 
with the creation of these cities, they don't have militias, but they do have personalized police forces. But this wizard brings them all together and says, if we can pool our resources, we might be able to prevent another destruction yeah. of an entire city at a mm -hmm. time, another sundering of the ages for millennia to come. If I collect taxes, I can create the Peacekeeper Legion. Yeah. And they will offer a great many benefits to your cities, which... Um, took took quite a bit of actually selling because these cities were city-states. Everyone was very independent, especially since there was a large racial divide between them. Basically, the introduction of these Peacekeeper Legions required absolutely insane enchantments and production ability, which this guy found how to do through mana. So basically, there are mana production sites hidden over the world question mark mm -hmm. uh, our players i'm sure will soon find out but have been used to create these peacekeeper legions so 200 years goes by the continent continues to develop many many more towns spring up arcane prevalence becomes a huge thing right mm -hmm. all these artificial cities especially had massive libraries built into them not really filled with anything, but a huge industry that came out of that was spellbook transcribers, people who could take the information that existed and then write, you know, 25 copies of a book. Yeah. And those would go into libraries all across the continent. And hopefully this means that magic is not so hard for people to learn, right? Even being a second level wizard in the world before, you were still pretty insane compared to the average person. And that was, there's a huge divide between the quality of life of someone who can cast Goodberry and someone who relies on a harvest and the blessing of the gods in order to put food on their table. Mm -hmm. So these wizards and artificers are a huge thing. Multiple industries came out of this. Florea himself, before the start of this campaign, was a spellbook transcriber, which mm -hmm. to me is very cool. The Bakudo are sort of this underground agency who deals in illegitimate, question mark, copies of these spell books. Um, they are admittedly sort of the black market of first copies. And Balios is from Endymion, which is this massive elven stained glass hub of artificery, which is very cool. They're all sort of outcasts from societies in certain ways. And one day they all meet and find themselves in the... Faradelian Palace, the Palace of the Commodus, which is where you guys met Ronan and Solara. And over the course of this time, Solara just says, I need some non-government officials to go to this island for me. And just look around and sort of tell me what you see, and I'll pay you anything you want in order to do so. And so everyone tells her what they want. She, being the Commodus, basically the head of wealth and power for one of the only bound continents in the world, one of the very first countries, of course agrees to oblige on completion. They decide to meet Solara down at the shipyard the next day. One of the things they notice is this massive tarped off area. They can hear like welding behind it and huge clanging, which in a shipyard is not necessarily uncommon, but ships are still made out of wood. And she says, oh yeah, don't worry about that. Just cool, cool Commodus projects. But then they meet Virion, 
this tabaxi ship captain. And he's got this airship called... The Dapper Citadel. Like, uh, Dapper Citadel. Mm-hmm. Of course, I can't believe I forgot. And so they get on this airship, and she just says, go to this island, um, I'll pay you after. And it's a little rushed and a little confusing, but nonetheless, our brave heroes carry on. And they get to this island, and they see this massive pink quartz crystal mountain just rise out of the center of the ocean almost. And, you know, as they're gazing in beauty, all of a sudden, this ship, powered by mana, begins to falter sputter of sorts as if the fuel is running out and surely enough with some successful arcana checks and creative uses of detect magic they see this stream of magic that is sort of tying or tethering this boat to somewhere on this island and it's draining all the mana out of it the the boat winds up crashing on shore completely destroyed virian somehow survives and continues on with the party for a little bit they continue up onto this island and it seems fairly fairly barren they do see some magical streams here and there and some clearings carved out but nothing really of note until they decide to make camp in this clearing for the afternoon regain their spell slots and after a while they hear this strange murmuring in the bushes and sure enough two guards who were wondering where this tower came from get noticed and so they run off and immediately return with what is statted as a warforged titan and so they're riding on its shoulders it comes in just swinging and wailing they destroy this creature and they wonder what it's doing there they explore this clearing a little bit more and find these illusory rocks hidden on the north side. And they see this strange metal sphere bound in chains with these copper boxes attached all around it and this big central porthole and these 10 braided cables hanging off, um, hanging off this sphere, five at the top and five on the bottom. In all actuality, that's a beholder with basically mana slots on it. So uh, a creature could put in one of these mana tubes and use a beholder's inherent natural eye rays to generate this mana and power their creations. This is in a chamber called Incubation. Within Incubation are these other tunnels that lead around the islands. They wander around for a little bit more. They find themselves at the edge of a lava pool. As they walk onto this very narrow bridge over this room of complete lava, a huge quadrupedal creature jumps out, and this turns out to be a rock wyvern from the elemental wyvern generator that uh, Alan and I, but mostly Alan, <laughs> made together, which can is basically a DIY dragon, but yeah. of course lesser. Mm-hmm. And it randomly generates a number of genetic and phenotypical characteristics and a stat block representative of these. So if you ever wanted a diverse set of monsters, I would highly recommend that you go give that a look. I can post the link to that somewhere here as well. Probably in the, Absolutely. We'll the game notes. Absolutely, we'll post the link in the description. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I said okay. game notes. Oh my gosh, that just shows how much <laughs> I'm into the D&D stuff. No, in, in, into the, the show notes. So this creature jumps out and starts screaming about purpose, what they're doing here. Their purpose is kind of that they were told to at this point, and they're doing it for a lot of money. This creature doesn't really seem to like that and says, I'll show you purpose. Fight Oh my god. Again, the player's creativity has to be applauded in instances like this because them being like, what, level 5 or Mm 6? Dunked on my 14th level spellcaster. Mm -hmm. Um, And and Mm -hmm. I do mean dunked. 
<laughs> he could not get a hit in edgewise. The dice were not in his favor, and the creativity of the players was just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, he was decimated. But before he died, he sort of receded into the lava pools to lick his wounds. They continued into these tunnels, and they found this large, large chamber absolutely littered with damage. I mean, from scorch marks to what looked like cracks in the stone walls to these electrical patterns where it looked like lightning bolts have hit from porous sections where acid had hit. Basically, it looked like this room was sort of like a miniature coliseum. In the center of this room was this strange crystal, like an actual pink quartz crystal, and it was Florea who touched it and took psychic damage and heard this very mottled, muddled voice speaking to him and couldn't get the voice to say anything afterwards. At this point, I kept trying to test the player's creativity. And at this point, I was I was absolutely ready. I knew what I needed to do. So I basically took all of the player's stats, upped them three levels, and then had them fight themselves as doppelgangers. And I thought, oh, this is great. Now I can make it 1v1. I've got the action economy back. Absolutely not. I think it was the second round into the fight, Florea, who still had this um, ejected mana core from yep, that from Warforged we talked about, uh, or from the Peacekeeper, the peacekeeper we talked please about bury. earlier. I know, I'm still slipping on that too. From the Peacekeeper <laughs> we talked about earlier, this central power unit, threw it at the crystal. And they're still not exactly sure why what happened happened, but it started releasing spell slots. And it released all of the spell slots it had within the fraction of a second and exponentially more per second. And that represented itself as a sun. The doppelgangers were gaining some of their spell slots from this crystal, and so they all together start clutching their heads as they basically disintegrate back, as this crystal's quote-unquote concentration is broken. But as this sun grows, and is growing very, very quickly, it, it captures one of their doppelgangers and just completely melts it. They realize that they are inevitably up a certain creek without a paddle. And as they are finding themselves up this creek, the sun begins to grow, as hydrogen reactions do, and oh, there goes the paddle. So they begin running back down one of these tunnels they saw off to the side, and all of a sudden these creatures around them start appearing, all with these strange symbols on their shoulders, three drow with pitch black capes, and they almost instantaneously perish. A Goliath and an orc with similar-esque tattoos who basically Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers clap each other's arms and flex mm -hmm. their biceps and then try to stop the sun, and they last a round, but also pretty much instantly die. Um, it was Phalios who cast Orb of... Do you remember what that spell was, Phalios? Ooh, it was uh, Odolith's yes. Resilient yeah. Sphere, yeah. Yes, yeah. Odolith's Resilient Sphere, that's right. But cast one of those. And they are now looking out the sphere as solar winds rip past the sphere. This orange glow encases them, but on the inside of the sun, they can see this dazzling array of magical effects. Every kind of beam spell, every kind of evocation spell... Even healing magic strands uh, flying past them, necromantic skulls, everything is on the inside of the sun. And all of a sudden, this giant silver claw reaches down through the ceiling 
and grabs them, and then this silver dragonborn and this four-legged creature from earlier begin to try and cast a spell within this sun as this large silver hand plucks them up and out of this tunnel, and they can find themselves in the clutched grasp of an ancient silver dragon. They're flying above this island. They look behind them, and they see that the sun has now protruded out of the surface. It's just eviscerating trees. I mean, it's burning an entire crater within this island. I mean, it's huge, and it doesn't look like it's stopping. Until a beam came down from the sun, the one up in the sky, to this sun. And almost intercepting it was at the very, very top of this mountain. This huge, staggered array of plasma just shooting towards the center of this solar storm on the ground. But as these two beams collide perpendicular to each other, the lightning bolt turns to glass and just instantaneously explodes. And then these huge chunks of glass and just this complete impenetrable field of minute glass shards just shred this dragon's wings and they all plummet. But uh, at the last second, she does tap the sphere and manage to teleport them to the top of the mountain. And they see her at the last second just twirling, just bleeding to the ground. And they see this beam from the sun up above strike down into the solar storm and then recede back up into itself. And then there's just a steaming, smoking black crater left on this island. So they're now at the top of the mountain. They get a very, very stern talking to about who they are and what they're doing here by the silver dragon, as well as this four-legged creature and the silver half-dragon who have managed to survive. And they just teleport away. Well, so our heroes crawl up over a ledge to this cliff and find themselves in this very run-down encampment. It, it seems like some kind of hippie camp almost is the closest thing. The tents are... All organically <laughs> fashioned. People wear burlap. Um, there doesn't seem to be many personal effects that aren't shared amongst everyone. And uh, everything that is shared is of used or lower quality. But they wind up talking to some people around here. And all of these people have been physically disfigured in some way. Some from obvious battle, others from birth defects. They meet these five creatures up here, one of them who is an eight-year-old tiefling with very, very burned skin and mottled hair who calls herself Astaline. Astute listeners might remember that from what, Phaleos? Astaline is my mother that died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, or possibly, because this girl is like, I'm eight. I don't know who you are. You're nice, but <laughs> you're a little weird. Stranger um, danger! Stranger yeah, danger! Stranger danger, indeed. But they have dinner with this guy who calls himself the Jarl, and it's these meager yet modest portions of potatoes and venison that they find from around the island. They wind up exploring the top of this mountain and the surrounding areas for quite a while. Lorea thinks he's been here before from old archways that lay rusted in the, in the ground a few hundred feet away from this clearing that looked like they used to be part of some massive superstructure over this uh, very top part of the mountain that he remembers, which is strange. And overall, I, I should very specifically clarify, in the center of this clearing, there is a large 10-foot-tall blue quartz crystal surrounded by competing smaller 5-foot-tall pink quartz crystals within the ground. And they're on top, and everyone's trying to figure out what's going on, and the Jarl says, hey, I've got this noon ritual. You guys can sit in if you plan on staying here for a while. We'll let you in on some of our customs. 
And of course the Jarl is in this wheelchair because he's missing one stump of the leg, he's missing most of the fingers on both of his hands, uh, and unbeknownst to the players yet, does have these cuts all over his body. So begins this ritual and covers himself in purple energy and manifests two mage hands that overlay his real ones, and this arcane flows over all his missing body parts, he stands up out of the wheelchair and he has this very, very ornate flowered sword on his back, and this very, very disfigured triton is kneeling, and everyone's around these crystals and just sort of watching intently and praying, but this black ooze that they saw in the tunnels begins to seep out of the ground and envelop this triton, Arcane bands lash to two of the pink crystals, and the Jarl just starts wiping this energy, like, on the crystal, just tracing his hands over the blue surface, and eventually a face pops out of the blue crystal, and another one, and another one, and another one. And he runs his hands over all of these faces before grabbing one, almost like what would be through the mouth to the back of the spine, and rips the face out, and all of a sudden has this, like, very, very sickly-looking corpse on the ground, and he just starts hacking it up and smearing flesh onto this black slime on this triton's body. And then they just it's leave it gruesome. there. Yeah, it is very gruesome. And then when they're done, they're like, okay, cool. Uh, what do you guys want to do now? <laughs> and so everyone, everyone at the top of this mountain just decides to go to the garden as this guy is laying there uh, covered in this black sludge, and basically, like, ground-up flesh. And the characters are... Our heroes are like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> if, if, I, if I may speak for you guys. I mean, honestly, but yeah, after- Ronan, I think, was super mad. What was Phaleos thinking? Because uh-huh. we were actually... Astaline was kind of scared. Yeah, she was. She was very standoffish, afraid with what was going on. Mm. I know just... I remember Ronan was very upset mm-hmm. specifically and i i feel like Phileos and florea were shifting their focus to making sure that she would not retaliate in this moment mm-hmm. because she was upset with what was going on he rather mm-hmm. indeed so these creatures begin basically just mulling about going about their business on top of this mountain within this clearing our heroes go around and talk to some of them and try to figure out what's going on but lo and behold by the end of the day they see this faint black speck on the horizon. As this day continues on and slowly begins to turn to evening, this black dot gets bigger, but they see this is indeed not a cloud merely aligning with it off the horizon. It is just one big, huge plume of black smoke. It's still miles and miles away, but they can see it'll be here um, in about eight hours. 16. Well, yeah, that that was a bit of a retcon. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be 16 hours before the final fight because it got there in eight. Yeah. So so it did get there in eight, and as it does, our characters begin making preparations for whatever the hell it could be. Everyone at the top of the mountain is super scared and upset and start talking about this old battle with a guy named Svije who looks a lot like Florea and acts kind of acts like him too, who Everyone thought that he died in this battle, but only the Jarl knew that he left to save everyone because they find the wreckage of another Warforged Titan at the top of this mountain, and they find out that it had been there before, looking for Sfije, and had been sent there by a guy. (laughs) um, Backstory Man! (laughs) And it had been sent there by Backstory Man. So everyone was understandably super scared. Svije knew what it was there for, and Svije left, but didn't want to tell everyone goodbye, so he just basically 
arranged for his death to be faked. So everyone starts freaking out that, oh my god, this guy's back, and now he sent a massive flying ship here, and everyone just begins making preparations for it. None of these people have formal military training, and so there's some creative instances there of Ronan's military expertise coming in, how to prepare for an attack, how to set up ambush positions. Phaleos and Florea using their exceptional wizardry skills to craft massive battlements and create barricades and snare traps cannot forget those eventually the ship comes and this is no this is no average airship this is basically an inverted aircraft carrier 500 feet long most airships don't exceed 120 this is absolutely insane in terms of scale of magic items that the world has ever seen but it's carrying this very strange looking metal tube that would be on the deck of an aircraft carrier but it's upside down so it's hanging there and as soon as the ship arrives it anchors itself with two like massive harpoons that sink into the island and then this giant metal tube falls and as it does it begins to writhe and lull a little bit begins moving and the players can see it's not rigid and looks strange but as it's dropped from a thousand feet in the air, it crashes onto the ground and just explodes into parts. It's now just a pile of metal. Mm -hmm. Surely enough, Solara appears right behind the party on a teleportation circle that had been left at the top of this clearing by Backstory Man 2. <laughs> and she appears with Roth and another massive peacekeeper. Solara shows up and she's wearing this very, very pitch black cloak. Ronan can see that it's stained with blood, but she's also wearing this very black muscular armor. And you can see these hydraulic coils and braided hoses that wrap around her form like a muscular structure would. And that is Arcan Organic Armor. And she's carrying this very ornate basket hilt rapier on her hip, but the basket hilt flows into uh, an inverse basket hilt, which makes up this hemispherical guard to the blade that actually like guards the wrist and wraps around in this uh, very nice fashion. And so she gets there and says, oh, this is so cute. What have you guys found out? And so talks to the party a little bit. Yeah. Kind of gives a little bit of introduction as to why she's there. And I did so much planning. It's hard for me to separate what she talked about when my mind kind of turned off and was yeah. only in one continuous <laughs> do you want us to take time. over why from don't here you, yeah why don't yeah. you guys talk about what transpired from the moment that she first appeared um right after her ship did oh okay. yeah oh baby uh i think i'll take over this first part a little bit if you don't mind go for it uh we were kind of caught a little bit off guard by solara and roth and mm -hmm. this giant peacekeeper that they had with them when they arrived uh, i should say yeah can i interrupt for one second yeah sure if there was any instance of a warforged in this world this would be the first one if this is a peacekeeper this is some insane piece that they must be trying mm -hmm. to keep yeah it's modeled after like a hunter from halo it's got the it stands at 15 feet tall it breathes smoke and fire out of its face it's got this huge shield on its left hand it's hunched over um and on its right uh on its right forearm 
are these massive like six inch diameter mana tubes completely filled to the brim and it mm-hmm. is just there unmoving very nice so yeah go ahead uh that was a good description so solara shows up and i distinctly remember ronan rolling pretty high on his perception check and he realized oh there's blood on her vanta black cloak not great she starts talking and apparently she's gone a little crazy and she mentions that she has had some dissension among the ranks um she's very tired of people not listening to her ideas and she comes and kind of asks us hey what have you guys you know what have you been up to what have you learned you know heard about the sun that was kind of wild wasn't it and mm-hmm. heard about know. the sun everybody had i think varying yeah. reactions to this well Ronan we, was immediately suspicious yeah we were i think we were all suspicious i think we just kind of tried to talk our way around what was going on Phileos, yeah. do you want to or sorry gosh i keep every time we're in <laughs> D mode i always call brooke ronin or tatsuo and i always call talon Phileos. So, Talon, do you want to go ahead and kind of give a little bit, like, of an like a in- insight for us on how you were feeling when Solara first got there and started talking to us? Yeah, for sure. So, Phileos has always had this underlying suspicion that this chick is just batshit crazy. Like, regardless of what she's promised us or what we're supposed to be doing, whether it was intended to be good or not, like, he's just concerned. And when she showed up, and, like, her demeanor was just so different in this instance from previous times talking to her, he was really on edge this whole time. And I remember having conversations with Barry out of session, be like, Phileos is going to kill her. Like, regardless of what the rest of the party thinks, he is going to make mm-hmm. sure that she does not leave at the end of this this battle. Uh, so he was just really put off, scared, and knew what he had to do. It was just a matter of finding the time and the justification as to why he needed to do it. Because he didn't want to just do it to yeah. do it. Like, he wanted to make sure that it would be fit for what was going on. So he was just yeah. scared. Do you want to kind of elaborate on what her, like, offer was to us? Yeah, so she had offered essentially to take our souls out of our bodies and to put them into basically a construct and yeah because essentially she had said like oh well you know these peacekeepers are great and all and what this original wizard did was cool and everything but these guys are just autonomous kind of like nothings right they do good at what they're programmed to do but they have no ability to learn outside of what they're programmed exactly and so what her plan was was to take these souls and put them into constructs, into these peacekeepers. And what we realized after that point was that, oh, this peacekeeper that she's standing next to is actually someone that we knew mm-hmm. shoved into this peacekeeper body, mm-hmm. right? And so it turns out, actually, that this person that we knew was incidentally also an experiment in the same way that Florea, who was known as 14, mm-hmm. was an experiment. And her number was four and uh she uh took the moniker katya which is close to quatra 
Um, and so um, basically what happened was uh, Solara had shoved her into this construct, but what we also learned was that Solara put inhibitors in this construct so that she couldn't do anything that Solara didn't want. And so it was this eternal life, but only at the behest of someone who was controlling them. Yeah. And so it was really a tough kind of situation because Solara was not telling us whether we would have the inhibitors too, but it was kind of, we were wary because we didn't trust her all that much any anymore. And I mean, yeah, at this point, right before this, um, Brooke Ronan had kind of renounced working for Solara. Working for any sort of really organized organization. Like any organization, really. Mm-hmm. He's pretty tired of just being someone's soldier. Right, exactly. Ronan hadn't had time to become like himself up mm-hmm. until this point. And I think it only really occurred to Ronan that he could be something other than that. Because Ronan like I think Ronan is a is is a deconstruction of this kind of like honor based society mm-hmm. where you are supposed to be one for the honor of the people, yep. right? Or the yep. honor of the family, right? And as Ronan looked towards that and he found a new chosen family, he realized that, well, I mean, I, I'm speaking for you. Why don't no, you No, I like it? where you're going with this. I kind of want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Well, I, to me, it felt like Ronan found a new chosen family mm-hmm. and realized that honor is not for others. Honor is built for yourself in a way that you value it. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? I would love to hear more about that because that, that was some dope stuff. Yeah, I mean, throughout this, in the entire time that Ronan was in the campaign, and he wasn't in the campaign until everybody had gone through 42 rats and then met up with Solara. Yes. Um, he was dispatched from Solara as somebody to escort them. Uh, he was, he also put up a front, but I think in, like, direct opposition to what Florio's kind of front was. Yeah. I mean, he wore a mask, so nobody could ever see the emotions on his yep. face. He was very rigid, didn't really say a lot, mm-hmm. didn't really express many emotions, mm-hmm. just was kind of there. Yep. He took... He kind of took orders from both Florea and Phaleos, but yeah. made his own executive decisions when yeah. it really came down to the wire. And, I mean, just spending time with them helped him realize that he didn't have to be an autonomous soldier. It's kind of what he's been trained to do his entire life. And for the first time in forever, he realizes, wait, I can do my own things. I can be whoever I want to be because I want to be this person. Mm -hmm. And that sort of coalesced into this one moment where uh, before the ship arrived, because we didn't know what was going to happen when the ship arrived, Mm -hmm. we assume it was going to be like Armageddon or something. Mm -hmm. He took off the mask and revealed his actual face, I think for the second time Mm -hmm. in the entire campaign, and said, I'm tired of always having to take orders and do someone else's bidding. Mm-hmm. I like you guys. You yeah. guys are my family. Yeah. And I have sworn so many oaths in my life, and they just feel meaningless. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to swear an oath to myself mm-hmm. to always do what I think is right because I want to and yeah. not because someone told me. And I really only think the co- the cohesion between our group mm-hmm. happened 
just after the whole sun explosion thing. Yes. yes. Because Floria got kind of deconstructed at that moment. Um, he, his stone got removed from him by that, that dragon. He's still very mad at her. Yes. Um, and he kind of talked to everybody and they were like, like, hey, like, are you okay? Can I do something for you? And Floria just kept being like, everybody feels like they know me. Everybody feels like they know what I want. And like, you guys aren't my friends. We're not friends. There's nothing here to be like, we're not here. I'm not here to hang out with you. I'm here to finish my job. Mm-hmm. Right. And a little bit of that was Floria lying. Um, but he's a little, an angsty teenager. A, a little bit of it. Well, no one knew he was 17 at that time. Yes. Uh, a little bit of it was him trying to just be like, it was also a little true, though. No one really knew what Floria wanted. I don't think anybody still really, really knows what Floria wants. But I think that his wants have changed. Yes. Sure. Um, so and and so like Phaleos just do, uh, do you want to elaborate on kind of like how Phaleos dealt with that situation? Because basically Floria was just like, you guys aren't my friends. Like. I don't want to, like, don't, like, get that through your minds. Like, we're not friends. I'm here to complete a job. We work well together. That's it. Yeah. And then Phaleos was really the one who talked to Florea about that and kind of brought him out of that mindset and kind of showed him, hey, man, like, it's okay to be friends. Yeah. So, Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So when Phaleos basically heard you say that, you, we don't understand you. We don't know you. You're here to do a job. Phileos took that as your your plea for help. Like he really listened to that and was like, "Man, this person is just grasping to have somebody listen, pay attention, care, and be there for them." So basically, they just had a conversation, and Flores like, "Oh, in, in this instance." I did this, and I, I tried to talk to you, and you ignored me. And Phaleos is like, I I may not have spoken to you because I've been so quiet throughout our interactions, but yeah. and then he goes on to list like all these actions that he was justifying in, yeah. instead of words to Florea, mm-hmm. and basically said, hey, I may not have been talking to you, but I've done all of these things for you because I care about you. And that was kind yeah. of like the the turning point between not only that relationship, but the cohesiveness of the group as well. Yeah. Cause I think then that Florea and, and Phaleos both went up to Ronan and they both, both basically talked to Ronan and said, Hey, this didn't mean as much as like, I'm sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean this. Mm-hmm. Like I felt like that though. Like people, it feels like people keep telling me, Florea basically said, it feels like people keep telling me what I want. And I'm just trying, like, to to live. I'm 17. I was an experiment for 15 years. I'm just trying to make a life mm-hmm. that sounds more fun than being in a prison cell for 15 years. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think then everybody kind of realized that that this was all a front. He liked being Florea, but he was really just trying it out. Mm-hmm. And he loves being Florea. That's his favorite person to be because that's all he's gotten to create. And so um, so it, it really brought the group together just to kind of get more grounded in each other's way that they interacted. Because Florea didn't understand that Phaleos was using actions instead of words until Phaleos opened up about it. Um, and he didn't really understand Ronan not opening up vocally until Ronan kind of was just 
putting himself out there more. What do you What do you think about that? I'm gonna be really real with you guys. When Florea kind of had his breakdown, he had no idea, like in every sense of the world, word, absolutely no heckin' clue what to do. He was just lost. He has no, like, very, very little inherent emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And he saw a 17-year-old having a breakdown, and he said, Crap. (laughs) What do I do with this? And, I mean, Ronan, outwardly, is a very, very stoic character. I mean, he wears a mask constantly. He doesn't really show emotion. He doesn't really know how to interact with people outside the bounds of doing a job. Mm And I feel like I made that a little too apparent. And it made Florea very upset. <laughs> and when he had this breakdown, Ronan realized, oh, God, this small, sassy child needs attention. And I haven't been doing enough to be there for him as a friend. And I am part of the problem. And I need to figure out why it is that I'm contributing to this and what I can do to help be there for him. And in turn, after reflecting on that, he realized that he needed to be a better friend to himself. Yeah, he had to take care of himself in order to better take care of others. Because Ronan had just been like someone who was was taking orders from others instead of allowing himself to feel the strength inside of him. Yeah. What I think is most what I think is most interesting about that when. Ronan, you first started talking about these emotions that you were feeling. You said that you wanted, or that you didn't enjoy this autonomous order-taking nature, which is really interesting because that ties back into the entire Peacekeeper Legion, that they are autonomous, non-sentient. They are the perfect Mm order-takers. And that the entire plan to create a limited sentience but still with these inhibitors on it Mm -hmm. and you in these moments feeling like you were a construction of yourself removed your own inhibitors Mm -hmm. Ooh, yeah Yeah, i like that that was just an interesting word choice yeah i I totally agree Uh, that was very deliberate to be clear and that ties really well back into what happened during the Solara scene. Um, She was very much like, hey guys, (laughs) you should let me take your soul and put it in a construct. Doesn't that sound so fun? Don't you want to be immortal? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, Ronan, being stoic, was very good at keeping a cool facade, but internally he was disgusted with everything that she was saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he let her on to think that he was interested just so that she would leave. Yep. And she did end up leaving at one point. Uh-huh. But I, oh, I don't think we got enough time yeah. between when Solara came and the second time that she showed up for him to really be like, I hate yeah. this. Mm-hmm. But that was what he was feeling in that moment. Yeah, because we basically had kind of told her, oh, come back in the morning and we'll talk to the Jarl about getting this book that you're looking for with this thing that you need and we we had found a journal from a wizard named Aurelius uh, or mm-hmm. at least um, Phaleos had yes and Phaleos do you want to talk a little bit about how you kind of got this journal yeah for sure um 
so I was talking to, oh my gosh, I think I was having, I, yeah, so it started off with conversations that Velios was having with the Jarl and kind of probing for information about Ziv, and I think it actually came in a part where I used Detect Thoughts, and I dug mm -hmm. into the Jarl's mind, and I kept pushing and pushing, and then I, eventually I saw this vision of this journal on his desk, and I was like, I need this journal. I need it. So while you guys went off and distracted the Jarl for a little bit, Philios went mm -hmm. and did some rogue stuff, um, snuck in, found this journal, and right on his desk, and this journal had this band on it. And I was like, okay, crap. I have to like unlock this. I have this many options to do this. I could dispel magic or try to pick it, or I could just use knock because I know knock, right? So I cast knock, mm -hmm. it opens. Do you want to describe the spell knock to people so that I, just I, for context? Yeah, you de you describe knock and I will describe everything else. All right, I'm going to search it here <laughs> just to uh, make sure I don't mess it up. Give him. Yeah, no worries. So basically... Knock says, choose an object you can see within range. The object can be a door, a box, a chest, a set of manacles, a padlock, or another object that contains a mundane or magical means that prevents access. A target that is held shut by a mundane lock or that is stuck or barred becomes unlocked, unstuck, or unbarred. If the object has multiple locks, only one of them is unlocked. If you choose a target that is held shut with an arcane lock, that spell is suppressed for 10 minutes during which time the target can be opened and shut normally. So essentially, I cast knock, and this arcane lock that is on this journal opens and gives me access to it for 10 minutes. So. There you go. <laughs> this journal wasn't necessarily a MacGuffin, but provided, would provide a lot of answers to questions that our heroes had been asking, as well as provide some additional means for future encounters. This notebook was very, very specifically enchanted to only be opened by certain people or in certain circumstances. It had a glyph of warding. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it had this homogeneously fabricated iron band around the journal. It had no lock, it was just fabricated on there, so you could not lockpick it. This metal band had, um, the iron band had a glyph of warding on it um, to, to prevent anyone from actually trying to open the band. Um, for flavor's sake, it had, um, even though there's there was just this one iron band around the journal. The rest of it had this kind of like miniature wall of force around it, just so no one could like actually flip through the pages while the band was on it. But overall, the entire journal was enchanted with a greater contingency, which allowed for a sixth level. Yeah, which allowed for. I do want to double check. It was super powerful. Yes, I think Sequester yeah. was on it. Yeah, yep. There was yes. there's some weird stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was a greater contingency that allowed for a sequester if the 
if the glyph of warding had not gone off or been dispelled as it should, then the book would sequester itself mm-hmm. um, for some other contingency. Yeah. When I made the book, I did not account for knock. I only accounted for like Everything brute force and dispel mm-hmm. magic. Yep. <laughs> so when Phaleos cast knock, I thought that is specifically not stated. This is not an omnipotent enchantment. It is an extension of myself and my creativity. The book opens. <laughs> yep. We unlocked it way quicker than we were supposed to because mm-hmm. we were just like, hey, cool, look at this spell. And I'm going to let you guys know, I DM'd the original game that this great wizard who wrote this book was in originally. He hated rogues then, and a rogue effed him the next time <laughs> in this campaign, even 200 years after he was dead. <laughs> rogues still I still laugh stuff. at this. Yep. Every time I think about yep. it, I laugh at it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <Ugh. laughs> well, so we got the we got the book. Um, and we realized it was incredibly powerful, and um, you opened it up, Phileos, and what all did you find in there? Just kind of give us a gist of what Yeah, was in so there. I basically find names of people associated with this island. Uh, I see Gressel, Solara, uh, just random names that we have heard before or interacted with, and then I find at the end of it, basically just spells written out and they're spells mm-hmm. that I have never seen in in this not only in terms of me searching for spells to add to my, my spell list but just I've never seen these before in the campaign as well um, basically spells we should, to we should, sorry we should talk about those ones yeah. those ones we can we should keep secret yes, for a little I will while keep those secret. but okay. essentially the okay, big cool. thing that I found in this was a spell scroll and this spell scroll was... I'm going to bash the name, Barry, of the spell. I can't remember off the top of my head, so fill me in. It was Conjure Colossal yes. Construct. <laughs> yes, Conjure Colossal Construct. And being a rogue, I was like, I'm stealing this. So I put I put, I, <laughs> I put this in my... I didn't even read it. Like I read the top, the name of it. I had 10 <laughs> minutes. I'm trying to like sift through this. So I read the name. I was like, ah, oh, cool. Because yep. it, it wasn't given to me at the time. It was just like a synopsis of it. I was like, I'm stealing this. I throw it in my robe and whatnot. And essentially, there's this spells in there. And they, sound, they sounded really powerful. And I was like, ah, oh, this might be useful sometime. And at the end of that, it locked... I put it back and kind of snuck out of there. And then... Knowing that we had to come back and get yes. it later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To which they all did. Um, uh, a little later on, as uh, Solara appeared, issued some threats, kind of talked about her plan and what exactly she wanted to have happen. Out of character, she was completely out of spell slots. Thank God you guys didn't attack um, she had no ability usage or anything. She used most everything to get there as quickly as she could. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why that's why her nose was bleeding um, when she first appeared, and that's why she left for ten hours. She needed a long rest. Ah, um, so did yeah, we? Yeah, so it gave you guys. Yeah, we all need a long rest. Yeah, yeah, you guys got a long rest too, which is good because you guys also used up a fair amount of spell slots creating these enchantments. Mm-hmm. But the next day, she appears again. A little bit more calmed down, but now it's like controlled yeah. crazy. Yep. And no, it's not quite as tired, frazzled. Yeah. And uh, what, 
Um, sorry, Brooke's giving me a motion, like sorry. she wants to say, the moon! Oh, yes. yes. Um, we realized that Solara wanted this journal, and we definitely weren't going to let her have it, because she is oh, on yes. another level of crazy. Mm-hmm. And I think Florea got this great idea. Well, we kind of collectively came up with it. We were like, yeah. I think, ultimately... Ronan was like, we need to hide this so she can't get it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Phaleos was like, well, can't you use like one of your spells to send it far away? And we can use one of the spells in this book, um, which eventually we got the book back mm-hmm. that we found the scroll in after being gifted it back by the Jarl who had an exchange with um, with Ronan. And we uh, we got the we got the book back to cast all these cool new spells i really want to get to the moon but yes. i want to go through the exchange with y- the yarl that happened y- after we did all that no because we had to have the book right it happened at the same time remember right. oh, oh yes, did, yeah. yes 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 yeah. okay so ultimately we knew that we needed to do this we got the book back from this pile of stuff that we kind of hid away from the camp as we were preparing um, because we dug a, ho- a, a tunnel underneath the, the the camp, and we hid all of our NPC friends in there so they wouldn't <laughs> die. And basically, we put all their stuff outside in a in a like covered over tarp area. We recovered the book from that tarp area, and me and Phaleos learned some of these spells from this book. One of which was called uh, Aurelius's Arcane Armory, which allowed Phaleos to, from wherever an item was in any plane summon it to himself. So what we did was I used fabricate to fabricate some gold cord, which was required for the spell. And any time, any place that you tied gold cord around you and you attuned that to an item anywhere on the world, you could use an action to summon that item into that body part. Right. And so for example, what we did was we put the spell back in the book. We let the, um, we let the knock fade so that the band recollapsed and then i used a rule of cool galder speedy courier and i sent it 10 miles deep into the surface of the moon (laughs) and yeah you did and and then eventually oh sorry i put it in a bag of holding and i sent the bag of holding into the moon so that it couldn't be scried upon big quartz crystal and a big crystal yeah that we needed for the spell as well so that way, Phaleos was the only person who could summon the book to himself so that he could cast the spell and so that Solara would not be able to find the book anywhere. Like yep. literally anywhere. when people say cast this spell, um, they mean the spell scroll, conjure colossal construct. Right. It's yes. a 10th level, but still universal spell scroll yeah. that requires significant material components to manifest itself properly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, um, yeah, and at that moment, one of the material components for that spell scroll, which we were kind of figuring we would have to ca- cast the next day, was um, was an, a, a blade called an Aurelian blade, which mm-hmm. was also from this spellcaster who wrote this book. Um, and Ronan had an encounter with uh, the Jarl. Um, and Ronan, do you want to go ahead and talk about that? Yeah, it is rather gruesome at a point, so I will try and keep it PG, as best I can, because I don't like gory descriptions. Um, so as the, I guess, full casters are doing their thing, Ronan being a, a third caster was like, oh, I'll 
go and check on the Jarl and see what he has to say about all of this because, you know, if Solara comes back and says, where's the journal? We just hand her a journal that the Jarl puts a, like a good amount of significance on and say, is this the journal you're looking for? <laughs> we try and deceive. Yes. We, um, we have the we have the good, good Phaleos to try and deceive yes. Solara. So, yeah. And so Rena goes down into the tunnels and enters into the, I guess, big, that clearing, this underground we, Yeah, we made a cavern. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, underground cavern that we yeah. made for them. And he goes to talk to the Jarl, and the Jarl is kind of sitting off in the corner. The Jarl, throughout this entire campaign, uh, he can't use his legs. He sits in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, the Jarl seems kind of somber, and when Ronan goes to talk to him, he asks him, like, hey, do you have a journal that we could use to deceive Solara? And the Jarl essentially says, it doesn't matter yeah. if I give you a journal or not. I know what I need to do. And really quick, just so that no one's confused, because I know what Barry described earlier sounded like the Jarl had pretty like weird intentions by like pulling these souls out of this gem and everything like that. But it kind of was implied to us that he was he thought that what he was doing was good mm-hmm. and he was trying to help people because basically this Triton was malformed and he was trying to give this Triton some life back. And um, he was doing good things in a kind of grotesque yeah. way. Yep. And we kind of got to the point where we trusted him again, just so that everybody's yeah. back on the course yes. of like, yes. wow, this guy did something yeah, really yeah. bad, but this is why yeah. he's good yeah, now. So is, like, we kind of had that conversation true. and linked those two he things was tr- together. Yeah, he was transmuting flesh for like a super, super... Um, him not having access to a lot of mag- magical knowledge is writing most of the spells that he knows himself. He didn't know healing magic, so he just said, hey, I transmute flesh to heal people. Yep. It was super gruesome, but, you know. It had a good intention. Pulling, yeah, he's pulling corpses and, like, facsimiles of life from this place that he knows how to get to into into a plane and then using that flesh to help people who come to him for actual healing to be you know, to be whole. And he sees these as, you know, real people. He's like, yep, got a pile of flesh, slap it on there, and then mm-hmm. you'll be good to go. And now you can live, you know, you can hopefully live a normal life and, like, aspire to a yeah, greater this, purpose. this whole yep, camp exactly. was, like, the land of the misfit toys. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's an apt comparison. I, yeah. I love that. Definitely. Uh, back to the encounter at hand, the Jarl essentially says, none of like, none of this matters. I know exactly what I need to do. Mm-hmm. And he... I think he stood up, I believe. I'm nope. fairly certain. No, he, he just sat in he his just, chair. He, he sat just in his leaned chair. forward. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yep, he just leaned forward. Yep, he leaned forward in his chair, and the uh, people that were underground were looking at him kind of funny, like, why are you talking like this? You're talking like this is the last time I'll ever see you. Like, what's happening? He leans forward, and to put it lightly, he had a hidden blade mm-hmm. in his back that was sort of keeping him together. Yep. And he took that blade out and said, hey, give this to Svijay Florea. Yep. He'll know what to do. And the Jarl perished. Yeah, so this guy had suffered wounds of some kind in the past, 
and he had actually been chopped in half, but this scabbard on his back was actually for a blade that was also a, uh, that um, in a previous form had been stylized as a whip. So this sword does have like detachable seg- segments in it. Well, this sword was on his back, and so he was cut in half, but it fused to the column of his spine, and so that's what was holding him together, and that was his arcane focus. But he knew that it was important, and it was the only thing of value he had to give that he knew um, Solara didn't know about. Mm -hmm. He was very confused about the whole situation, but he understood that though the journeys were different, the outcome would be the same, and he knew he needed to give this sword to a person that looked like someone else he trusted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he pulled this blade off, no longer fusing to his spine, so um, uh, basically he just became paralyzed and instantly died as as the sword holding him together. He literally fell apart Mm -hmm. in his seat. Yeah. And from there, we had a really awesome funeral for him. Mm-hmm. We uh, buried him under his favorite plant. Uh, yeah, go ahead. First of all, potato plant. Yeah. I was just going to say we need to mention what happened with uh, Esteline. After the Esteline funeral. was there holding the Jarl's hand as this mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, after the funeral. Mm. Yep. Yep. But we go through this funeral. It's very, very beautiful, but... There are rare moments in D&D where a player can possess NPC magic. It's the rule of cool personified, and in funerals, it's especially important to let emotions manifest themselves Mm -hmm. through game mechanics without mechanical limitations, right? It it only deepens the emotional bond. And um, something that's been done before is... um, free magic you get to carve a gravestone or something like that yeah even an intelligence-based spellcaster can use what whatever charisma they have to directly channel this like raw power and just create a minor effect you know they're always small things but they're meaningful things and so that's something that i know alan and i have both always strived to achieve Mm -hmm. but astaline not being a very powerful spellcaster at all does let this magic sort of consume her for a moment. Her eyes begin to glow, and she looks just a little bit healthier in these moments as she embraces um, this side of herself and gently lays this visage of um, just the Jarl's uh, name on this rock, turns around and says, Fingers at Phaleos. Yeah. Um, what Fingers at Phaleos. <laughs> do, do you remember? What I that remember. Was, I was. Uh, I was. I thought he was building up a suspense before he was going to say no. it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, to you. Yeah. So basically, she looks at me and says, "She says like it's it's nice to see you, right? Like I feel like I'm slashing it, but yeah, she, she's like it's yeah. nice to see you again." So a little uh-huh. bit that set me back. Like that made me shiver. Um, so a little context, uh, in this moment, she's eight years old and she supposedly shows up at this island, um, eight years ago, which coincidentally aligns with the same time frame that my mother in the story dies. 
So Phileos, his whole time is just mind blown that this is actually is like a reincarnation reincarnation of his mo- of his mother. So mm-hmm. he then in that moment knows more than ever how much she's hurting, and he has to do something to remotivate yeah. and show that he cares for her and understands who she actually is mm-hmm. if she does understand. So he takes out his uh, skeleton mage hand and takes off mm-hmm. his mother's ring on the mage hand and yeah. gives it to her. Yeah. That was so amazing. I loved that so much. That was so fantastic. And it was very cool. Mm-hmm. But overall, I think we should actually get to some of the mechanics of the final fight, which involved a lot of preparation, but hopefully our listeners are actually still paying attention and we haven't talked them completely (laughs) to sleep over the last two hours. I actually, I think, truthfully, Barry, if I can take this from you, I think the fact that we've listed two hours so far is awesome, and this has been fantastic backstory for the final fight. What I say we do is we cut it here. We talk about, we've talked about all of the backstory. We come back and record it on our normal day when we play D&D so that we take a little bit of a break this week because we need a break after that 13, 17 hour session that we played. Oh my gosh, yeah. It was very long. And then we can talk about the final fight and how we felt about the final fight on that day. Does that sound good to everybody? That gives us time to process the the after effects. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That does sound great. Awesome. Yeah, so we've got the spellbook on the moon. We've got uh we've got Phaleos with Aurelius's arcane armory ready to summon everything from the moon. We've set up a bunch of traps. We've gotten everything ready. Uh I have Floria has meticulously scoured over every spell he knows and put all of them in the proper place to make sure everybody's safe. Um Ronin has gotten this peaceful night of respite defending the grave of a fallen comrade. Uh, Brooke is making a motion towards me. Did something happened in the tower with Florea that interrupted the nightly vigil. Oh, yeah. And he had to go and comfort Florea we can, instead. We, we can, can talk about later. We can talk about that next time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah for we'll, sure. we'll sort of do a little intro, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So He's getting used to not having tattoos on his face. We've got a whole bunch Very of stuff weird. that happens there. Ultimately, we go straight into just the moments before the night of the final fight. And that is where we will pick up next time. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, tense music here. Insert it all. Yes. Um, but uh, does anybody have anything else they'd like to say before we skedaddle? I think what, another thing that would be f- absolutely fantastic for us to put in next week's notes, if Barry, if, if you have a chance to maybe write them all into a Google Doc or just copy and, and paste them, we have actually Aurelius's original spells that he put into his book that we are going to be releasing at some point. So if that's Ooh. okay with you, Barry, I would love to be able to release those next week. Count that should be that should be four or five spells. Very yeah, nice. yeah, that'd and be a perfect could, little oh, DLC for yeah, anyone we, that would like to participate in an extended version of this character. Are yeah. we EA? Are we going to make it super expensive? No, it's going to be completely free. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, and also, I think it would be awesome if we had some of Solara's signature spells in there that she didn't use, and also the specific spell that Florea created himself. So, um, Indeed. Yeah, I would love to do those as a quick add-on to next session, so or next next podcast. So let's go ahead and do that. Does anybody have anything else they'd like to say? I don't think so. Like, that sums it up for failures. If you're listening this far, 
thank you for sticking with us. You're yeah. wonderful. You get a cookie. Yeah. In, in in your brain, we don't have any real cookies to give you. Um, if you email a Journey's Rest, or sorry, Journey's Rest podcast at gmail.com, we can send you an internet cookie. We'll send which you a I photo think, of a cookie. Which is, I think, actually very different from a real cookie. Yes. An internet cookie is not a real cookie, but you can be sent one if you want. So, uh, yeah, that's your choice. So I think that's all we really have to say today, though. Let's go ahead and get ready for part two, and we will uh, see you guys very, very soon. So, yeah. Adios, everybody. Bye-bye. All right. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. The fact that you have made it here to the end means the world to us. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with your friends, or if you have the time, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts is a great way to show support. You can follow us on Twitter at A Journey's Rest, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash A Journey's Rest Podcast. If you have any questions for us to answer, you can send them in to journeysrestpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for sharing the precious pieces of your time with us, and we hope that the rest of your day is just as wonderful. See you again at our table soon.